Welcome to the new TV Gold podcast from Media Week's Andrew Mercado and James Manning, a podcast for people who love great television. This is a special episode of our TV podcast, TV Gold. This week, we're going to be looking at John Farnham finding the voice, a sort of documentary uh, cinema release, which is just knocking on the door of $3 million, which makes it the best performing Australian documentary ever released in cinemas, I'm reliably informed. Joining me this week is my usual co-host, Andrew Mercado, and our special guest is David Wilson. Welcome to you both. David, if I could start with you, you're listed as John Farnham's co-manager. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with John and w- what you do these days for him. Sure. Well, John and I go back around 38 years. At the time I first met him was working in a recording studio in Melbourne called Armstrong's at the time. Armstrong Audio Video became AAV. And that's where John made all of his records from Sadie all the way through to, well, everything. I don't think he's ever recorded anywhere else in his career. And I was working there as a studio manager at the time. That's how we met. And we became friends. And then I met his remarkable wife, Gillian, and we became friends. And then uh, their son, James, son number two, came along and they asked me to be his godfather. And uh, that's 35 years ago that James came along. Um, subsequently, um, through all the years, I've uh, worked in different capacities with John um, through the Whispering Jack and the Age of Reason tour. Um, I worked in a creative capacity um, looking after the how the band and John looked on stage with wardrobe and things like that. Then I started making um, uh, TV content uh with John, for John. So primetime specials um, with uh, for network television um, when he was on the road doing tours. Uh, and um, and I made the last documentary, the first documentary that was ever made about John, which was his 25th anniversary special for Channel 10, which Bert Newton hosted. Um, and, um, and I made that back in, mm, yes, well, <laughs> about 30 something years ago. Um, so, um, uh, yes, it's it's been a fantastic uh, friendship and uh, incredibly nourishing on every single level. Um, and uh, we spend so much time together holidaying and uh, I have Christmas lunch with the family every year since the day I met them. Uh, and that and, and, and yeah, that continues. These days, um, um, following Glenn Wheatley's passing, um, I am now standing next to Gaynor Wheatley from TalentWorks um, to support her, um, and uh, together we look after um, John and everything that needs to be attended to, um, which has been a pretty interesting twelve months as well. Um, and um, uh, and yeah, so it's evolution, I guess, in the relationship over decades. You know, you've talked about all those incredible things you've worked on with John Farnham and, you know, that's very much the narrative that he's a legend and a huge success. But I think one of the most interesting things about this documentary movie was that it shone a light on those years before John found that second huge fame and that really difficult period in before. I mean, even though you know, I lived through it, James, would have, we all lived through it. You sort of forget 
you know, you're vaguely aware. Oh, yeah, he was with LRB for a while. I kind of remember that in countdown days. But as a as an audience, we kind of choose to forget that he had that really difficult period in between, right? Yeah, incre- incredibly difficult, and and that is, you know, one of the um, uh, I think one of the revealing narratives in the film uh, where uh, they drill down into those very, shall we just politely call it, lean years, um, uh, where it all went uh, horribly wrong financially for Jill and John, and um, uh, they were to use. A phrase that I think Jill uses in the film was that they were on the bones of their ass, actually literally living in a rented house uh, in Melbourne uh, with um, Rob, their first boy, um, who at the time was about five or four years old. Um, and I was actually there on the day uh, at the house when uh, Jill's mother was there visiting and she said, why don't we get some McDonald's for dinner tonight? Rob will probably enjoy that. And John just literally froze. We were sitting in the dining room. He literally just became a frozen moment. I didn't quite clock what was going on. It was only for a few seconds. And then he just started to well up and Jill just reached out to him across the table and held his hand and and he just clenched his jaw and he said, I have no cash. We cannot go to McDonald's. And that was, well, I I didn't realise how dire it was until that moment. That was really, really revealing. And that's, and that's touched on in the film. And it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a, a, everybody I think is surprised by how low it, it got for him. And, and and LIB came along with all great intent. That it was going to be, you know, a new platform putting you in front of a, a new and larger audience in the US, because you know at the time LRB were massive, playing you know twenty thousand, thirty thousand seat arenas in America, touring constantly, um, and uh, and he went into the band, replacing Glenn Shorick, who stepped back from the band, um, and um, it didn't turn out the way. Everybody hoped that it would, certainly not the way John hoped it would. He ended up being reined in by the band, well, Graham Goebel in principle from the band, and this is covered off in the film as well, um, literally reined in and told to stand still rather than move around the stage, told not to interact with the audience, just sing the songs um, and stop pulling focus from us because we're the band. And, you know, you're a lead singer. It's You don't stand still. You are the one that can move around because you're not fixed in a position. You know, that's the whole point of being the front guy and being the entertainer, which, of course, is John's, you know, core DNA. He's an entertainer. Um, and uh, so it was incredibly difficult for him. And there was one particular show which was the tipping point for John, and I think it was in San Francisco where they were doing a another one of the huge stadium shows with LRB and Graham Goebel was obviously so fed up with John pulling focus, as he would say, uh, that he and Goebel instructed the uh, road crew to gaffer tape John's mic stand down on the stage so he couldn't couldn't move it and to shorten his mic lead to X number of metres long so it, it had a, because there wasn't a radio mic 
then. Um, and, and so he can only go so far. It's like a dog on a leash in the backyard. So that was for John. That was if he was like, I'm out. But, you know, the exit wasn't just, you know, a, uh, it wasn't just a clean break. What happened was that it kind of required John to leave the company because LRB was a company and John was a, became a director and a shareholder of that company. What John didn't know was, is that the, ba- the band had a whole lot of debt that he wasn't across. And, uh, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Um, and he had to wear his share of that. So he was already on the bones of his ass and he went even bonier because he had this, uh, you know, had to pick up the band's debt as well. So it was, yeah, it was dark, really dark. David, um, as Andrew pointed out then, and you, you explained that the documentary goes into all, all, all parts of his career, the, the highs, the lows. I'm just wondering, because the image I've got of, of John and, and maybe with you over the years that he, he was very quite a private person mm. and more so maybe the older he got. What, so what was it about this pitch from the, from the filmmakers that he felt he could trust them to tell the story? I mean, can you mm. tell us a little bit of background about that? Well, it was, it was Glenn's idea, his, his initiative. Uh, to make the you know the definitive uh, uh, movie about John's life because it had not been done, he thought it was a great opportunity. Um, uh, when he put it to John, he had Glenn knew what John's reaction was going to be, which was nah, no, 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 let's not do that. And you know, so that you know, the conversation which they had had, you know. 100,000 times over the 40 years that they worked together. You know, Jen, Glenn just keeps chipping, 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 chipping away <laughs> and wearing John down um, until you get some kind of, you know, mutually agreed middle ground where John basically it was tacit approval where he said, I'm not going to stop anyone from doing it. Um, you know, go ahead, but please understand I won't participate. I won't sit down and do an interview. And um, uh, if that's agreeable to the producers, then Godspeed. To them. So that's that was the that was the the primary term or the primary condition of the uh, of his tacit approval, which was just don't ask me to do anything because I don't want to sit down and talk about me and my life. Um, so he left it up to everybody else. Um, you know, Gaynor and I were uh, able to go and see various uh, edits of the film through its journey and post uh, and provide the team uh, with notes, um, which they always embraced. And they were very generous and very collaborative in putting this work together. Um, and then towards the end, as it was approaching, you know, Final cut or finer cut. Um, we invited Rob and James, the boys, to come along and have a look as well, just for that final family filter. But John has still never seen it to this day. Wow. Um, and that is consistent with, <laughs> I mean, every show that I've ever produced for him, he's never watched any of them. He may have seen a promo or a trailer. That's it. And he just asks questions. He just, you know, he's, uh, he would just ask like, uh, about the, this film, he would say, 
do they touch on dot, dot, dot? Yes, they do. How do they deal with that? And you just unpack it for him, but you just walk him through it in a conversation. He goes, okay, sounds good. You know, and, uh, you know, so I guess he's pretty relaxed about it because he knew that everybody in that circle had his best interests at heart and that they weren't setting out to do some kind of, you know, hatchet job. So he didn't, he didn't have it. He didn't have to have any concerns and lose any sleep over it. It was very interesting, uh, David, for me watching it because I had quite recently listened to the audio book that Glenn Wheatley had recorded of what was his first sort of biography, which I didn't realise because the audio book got to the end and he said, oh, and then I had a bit of trouble with the law, but I've had a great life. I'm like, what? What is it? Is it over? <laughs> and then about... A week later, I was in a secondhand bookstore and I went, there's, an- there's another book by Glenn Wheatley. And he'd written that whole other book about yeah. his experiences with the, the tax and, and all of that. So I was very up to date with that Wheatley history and that incredible relationship, the, a brother-like relationship that he'd had with that John. Um, and of course, then, you know, Glenn passed. And so, you know, I was so thrilled to see Gaynor Wheatley stepping into that. I, of course, know her being a, a TV head. I remembered her career. I followed her through Skyways. Yeah. Sons and daughters. And then she married Glenn and, and we never saw her on TV again. That, but wedding photo on the front cover of TV Week. I remember yeah. it. Yeah. But I, I love it that she was there and, and she seems to have stepped into those shoes of exactly right. Glenn to, to keep this program project going yeah a hundred percent you know obviously you know that the 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 film's pre-production and some of the uh master interviews were done while glenn was still with us in fact that interview of glenn that you see in the movie is the last interview he he recorded for anybody uh and that was so it's it's emotionally loaded this film on so many levels that was never intended or or foreseen to be this way uh so it was you know as, as as you know in the process of making these kind of documentaries, when you've got your your uh, your key uh, characters like Glenn, you sit down, you do your first master interview, and then you, of course you put him on notice, saying we're going to we're going to likely do some pickup interviews over the coming months as we start to assemble the film and get you to come in, come back and sit down and tell us, you know, drill down to that point a bit more. Someone else has just spoken about this in another interview we've done. Can we do a pickup with you so you respond to it? That kind of stuff. Well. Glenn didn't make it, look, he wasn't available to do the pickups. He he passed away. So the producers had to change tact about how to put the film together. So we had all, all these these layers going. They had all these layers going on from you know the movie they intended to make ended up being mm, version B and then became version C because mm. you know, apart from Glenn passing, uh, Olivia passed. Uh, and she, as you know, does some of the narration in the film, particularly the first half of the film. And, and you can hear how very frail she sounds in that narration. And she had been approached very early on to be one of the, the key uh, interviews for the film and, of course, said yes straight away, but was not available to, to sit down and be films straight away. Not everybody understood the reasons why, because it was being kept very uh, private, but of course she was ill and becoming a lot more frail. But that was not what her team were telling the producers. We knew in the background 
that that was what was going on, but it wasn't for us to tell the producers that. So uh, eventually, um, being stoic and true to her word and wanting to honour her dear friend John, her team reached out and said, it's tomorrow, Olivia will sit down, it's audio only, you bring your gear to the house with the script and we'll, and we'll do it, you've got 45 minutes. And of course, they arrived at the house and it was evident that she was incredibly weak and that was the last thing she recorded too. Wow. And she passed away a, a matter of weeks after recording that narration. Um, and then John got sick. So, you know, there's all these, yeah, you, it's, it, the, watching the film the first time, it was tough for all of us in the room because we all were in, connected to all of these events very personally, viscerally. It's, it, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was quite a process, quite a process. Sitting next to Gaynor as she watched the first screening at the Sony Pictures Theatrette in Sydney on the big screen, watching her husband talk. Wow. That was, it was, yeah, it was a tough day, tough day, but it's a, a magnificent outcome. And of course, everybody's so incredibly grateful that it exists, grateful that I think the number at the box office is something like 320 something thousand tickets were sold in Australia. And that's, you know, that's three sold out MCGs. That's 26 Rod Lather arenas. It's remarkable. Um, and, uh, it was only supposed to run in cinemas for two weeks and it ran for nearly nine weeks. Um, cause that's what, that's what the business plan was, a two week run and then it'll go to TV, you know, but it just kept being pushed out, pushed out, pushed out because the people kept turning up so yeah everybody's incredibly grateful and um and blown away probably none more than john david i mean you've been good enough to give us your time today because we're talking um just prior to the home entertainment uh release of um john farnham finding the voice and they of course all the interviews are there and there's some actually some extra footage so there's a bit more than people got to see either at the cinema or when it's screened on seven. Um, could I ask you a little bit about the interviews? You you told us then about Glenn Wheatley and um, look, there's so much to like about this, but for me, that's one of the highs. It was just seeing that footage of Glenn, you know, it was just, yeah. I was lucky enough well, to meet him a couple of times. It's just the, 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 the story of, of, you know, John and Glenn's story, their, you know, their parallel lives. It's, it's a love story. Mm -hmm. It really is because, you know, they went through so much together individually and together and stood by each other. And I think this is also, it is in the film as well. They never had a contract, management contract in place for decades, for, for plus decades. And there was, you know, some very challenging times, which is on the public record in Glenn's life um, and in John's life now on the public record as a result of what we're seeing in this movie. And Glenn didn't ever turn his back on John and John never turned his back on Glenn. And they just kept lifting each other up. And that is remarkable. I don't think we'll ever see that kind of union in our industry again. I think that's so unique in, yeah. in, in, in our biz. Um, and it, yeah, it was like no other. What, what I wanted to ask you was that the, um, 
did you help in getting any of the other people you know, convincing them to be part of the project because there's quite a lot of people oh, there. You don't. No, no, that, that, that was that was that was that was Pip, the director, and uh, and her team um, at Beyond, um, who uh, did all that uh, that legwork of um, sitting down and acquiring all those other interviews. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We didn't we didn't we didn't want to get uh, involved and get under their feet in the process of making the film. They're the filmmakers. They're the mm-hmm. ones that raise the money. You know, through all the finance uh, channels and so on did the pre-sales um it uh, it was important that they that they had control of the steering wheel you know we just we were just there to, to, to consult and support help find stuff in the garage where we could you know from children john's libraries and you know photos and home movies and things like that um and uh yeah just give them yeah get them uh give them their space to do the job the business model for this film is very similar to Jimmy Barnes's biography film, Working Class Boy, in that it started in cinemas and then it was on Channel 7 not long mm. afterwards. Mm. Although it was slightly different because at the time I had a cinema screening Working Class Boy and Channel 7 were advertising that it was about to be screened on TV and I was putting oh. my air out going, stop, stop, oh, yes. have these cinema rights first. But, I mean, yeah. this I, I saw the film in cinemas um, I went to see it on opening day and the emotion of seeing all that on the big screen. I mean, as the credits were rolling and the lights were coming up, I, I could see and hear people crying all around me. Um, but is, the, is this a model that was suggested to you because it had worked successfully for working class boy? Get, get I, I assume from this that Channel 7 invests some money in the production to get those TV rights after the the short cinema run yeah again it was it was uh, michael and the beyond team that did all the financing uh, and the pre-sale to channel seven but yes i i do so i wasn't party to those transactions but um but i do know that seven were you know there at the table with good cash very early on to acquire the the free-to-air rights um and you know that's as you know in in with these uh models you can't do the job unless you've got the cash in the bank. You can't expect someone just to, you know, uh, med- write out the magic check. It's it's real. It's got to have real folding in it. And people like Seven um, and the, the various funding bodies um, uh, were uh, instrumental in making making it happen because these things, you know, cost a lot of money. I mean, it's it's millions to make a, a movie like this. It's not just uh, it's not yeah, it's not cheap. I might go through some of the content and just get some any sort of uh, personal reflections from you about it. I mean, hmm. Daryl Samble, his first manager, looks a fascinating character. Oh, yes. Um, that's a story that's never been told. Now, he was – now, was Bev Harrell his partner? Were yeah. they married? They were boy, they, uh, uh, no, they weren't married. Boyfriend and girlfriend. Now. Boyfriend and girlfriend. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, I think that, uh, the, the term is, you know, the, uh, would be there was his beard. There's no, I don't think we can put it any other way. Okay. Um, that's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, Daryl was a, was a piece. I never met him, but I feel like I have. Um, uh, he's asked as well, so we can speak openly. Um, 
but I feel like I have known him from all the horror stories that you know Jill and John have shared with me over the years. It's uh, yeah, he was a real. He was nasty. He was a nasty man, and he and he really manipulated John and um, uh, on every level um, and uh, took advantage of him because John, you know, was. 1819 at the time uh, that that he and Daryl worked together and, you know, Darryl, yeah, John could never work out how he was able to keep going all the time because Daryl would have him working three, four shows a week, a, a day, um, and, uh, you know, eventually learned that he was actually just slipping pills into his coffee and his Wheaties and all that kind of stuff just to keep John going and John was not aware that all, all that was happening. So it was um, it was pretty sinister stuff. There's one um, part that is not in the documentary, uh, a bit of TV history here, is that in the mid-'70s maybe, John Farnham made a sitcom for Crawford's called Bobby Dazzler, and he was a pop star and Maury Fields, he shared a flat with Maury Fields who was a, a relative or something. And I've got this vivid memory of this episode where Sigrid Thornton is a groupie and she breaks into the flat and she's trying to tear his clothes off and all that. I mean, I don't know, is Bobby Dazzler a no-go in the history of John? Or did no. it, was there just not enough room in the doco to include that? I think it it, it it was uh, Sophie's choice situation. I think um, for 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 Pip, the director, um, you it, yeah, you have to make decisions about what to leave out. You know, she was spoiled for choice uh, as to what what was available to include in the movie. Um, uh, you know, it could clearly have gone for a lot longer. There could clearly be enough material to do a sequel. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, because, you know, John is famous for coming back. He can come back into cinemas as well. Um, but, um, it's, yeah, it, no, there was no, I, I know John thought the world of Maury Fields and that, that, that experience for him was, yeah, was, was a positive one. No, no doubt about that. Um, and the footage, I mean, I, they must have looked everywhere. Is, is the, one of my favorite things is there's a performance, I think, in Germany. Of you're the voice, uh, and I'm I'm guessing that's pretty rare footage anyway. That's that's just magic and the crowd reaction. But is John much of an archivist? Do the does uh, they was there just boxes in a garage, or has he got some catalogued? What's what's the story there? Sadly, no. And this this is just consistent with the man and his uh, humility. He doesn't keep anything. There's there's no trophies on display in his home. There's no gold records hanging up. In, in the study wall. They're sitting in boxes and they're not labelled, they're not archived. So, no, it is. it was a bit of a nightmare to find stuff. That footage from Germany that you talk about, James, was actually found by uh, uh, Pip's team, the Beyond team, yeah. uh, and John and the family had never seen it before either, didn't know it existed. So that was a, an absolute revelation and it's such a powerful gig, you know, as they say, as, as it's framed in the movie, you know, you're the voice was number one in Germany at that time. It was a concert of a hundred thousand people singing along with John and the band. Um, and it was, it was just that sweet spot because the, the wall had not yet come down. It's what everyone wanted to happen. So that voice resonated with 
the citizens of Germany, especially, um, and uh, and they embrace it as an anthem of their own. Um, and uh, it was, uh, yeah, a powerful, powerful day. But he'd never seen that footage. He's still never seen it because he hasn't seen the documentary. <laughs> but he knows it exists. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, after its incredibly successful run in cinemas, Channel 7 screened the movie twice in prime mm. time within nine days. Mm. And then not long after that, another special turned up, sort of unseen footage of John Farnham. So I'm wondering, is that something that was done in cooperation with you or was that something that Seven, looking at those ratings and catching the fever, thought, oh, I'm sure we can cobble together some other stuff that's in Channel 7 archives? I'm going to go with the latter. Um, it's certainly, it's certainly uh, I did speak with uh, Mark Llewellyn at the Spotlight uh, Division at Seven when we learned that there was a plan to make that special um and 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 i said we don't think it's necessary you know with australia's at the time it was about three million australians had already seen the movie on tv on seventh over the two screenings and with all the catch-ups and what have you um and uh, we didn't think there needed to be any more john on tv uh and he you know pitched saying, you know, we've got such a rich archive here. It's it's a waste not to use it. And we really think people will want it. And it's a tribute. And we want to celebrate John and everything about him. Um, and so well intended, but yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it's not something that we wanted to have happen, especially so soon, because it just it, it felt like overkill to me. But um, uh, they, yeah. They did a good job, but it just seemed, yeah, seemed unnecessary. I, I think it was the, it was the special no one asked for. <laughs> yeah. Tell us, were the of the interviews in the movie were there people you hadn't um, come across for a while, or who actually contributed quite a bit? The things to me I, I like was part of was it um, Ross Fraser. It was good to see him. I think David Hirschfelder. Yes. With some people who were critical in the sort of, can we call that sort of the one of the comeback periods? Could you call it? Well, it was because, yes, because Hirschfelder and and Fraser were, you know, the creative team with John um, for creating Whispering Jack in, you know, the, the the garage of his rented house in Bulleen in Melbourne, so that's uh, that's where it all happened. Weekly went and mortgaged his house, found enough money to pay for the album to be recorded and mixed, um, and pay everyone their their for their time uh, as musicians and singers and so on, and used John's garage as the studio, uh, and they made that album, which you know we all know what that album is in Australian history, still the largest, highest selling. Uh, Australian album of all time, um, uh, and yeah, that all happened there. So seeing Hirschfelder and Fraser talk about the making of that album is really special. Um, I don't think they've done that before. Seeing Vanetta Fields there because um, she's a very private person as well, uh, uh, and well, what a remarkable career she's had. You know, she's someone with the Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin, Boz Skaggs, John Farnham, and, you know, and she holds him in such, such high regard and has such love for him, and it's completely reciprocated. They are, you know, they're magnificent friends. Um, and 
uh, yeah, so it was some, there were some fantastic interviews in that, in, in the movie. Really good stories, well told. Here's a question I noticed for you, David and James. You know, watching the documentary and seeing and re- remembering that, you know, we would make John Farnham king of pop and put this crown on his head and give him a cape. And this was a, a TV show. And this was back when TV we. TV Week magazine was this real cultural force. I mean, the Logies were voted for, you filled out the coupon in TV Week, put it in an envelope, mailed it in. That's how the Logies were won. So my question to both of you is, is that how they we awarded the King of Pop? Were we writing out a coupon from TV Week and sending it in? I can't remember because King of Pop James will know. stopped James in the mid-70s. Know. Come on, James. Did we fill out a coupon from TV Week to vote Johnny Farnham King of Pop back in the 70s? I've got to tell you, look, I'm not sure. I was more a go-set boy myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, it's possible, as I sit here, it's possible that it may have been coupons that you picked up from the milk bar when you okay. and they may have been attached to the coca-cola fridge oh. at your wow very good you know, a, a please take one pad you know yeah and then you and, posted and re- that in that could have been it and remember back in those days too uh, we would ride our bikes i think on a thursday to the Meyer store at the bottom of the school. And we would go in and go to the record counter because that was the day that the printed top 40 oh, yes. from our cool radio station. <laughs> yes. I mean, all that stuff was really yes. important. Remember? 3XY, 2SM. Yeah. Yeah. And they would have been Coca-Cola charts. They would have been printed. James, you know this from from – uh, that they all would have been Coca-Cola sponsored charts. They would have been printed in red ink, PMS 185, <laughs> which is Coca-Cola red. Um, and, <laughs> and we, and you're right. We, we all hung out to see what was going to happen. And then of course, countdown came along. And then we yeah. would just tune in on a Sunday night to see what was number one. There's no so way true. of knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Look, um, before we let you go, David, there's two things I want to ask you. And the first one, I mean, is, how is John? I mean, what can you what What are you able to share with us at at, at the moment? Well, he's he's home. He's comfortable. He's uh, confirmed. Uh, I think about a month ago to be cancer free, um, and he's still in recovery because it was a major procedure, um, and uh, so there's still a ways to go. But he is, uh, yeah, he is strong. He is back to his daggiest version of himself. He is doing the worst, lamest jokes at home. Um, but uh, you put up with that, as you know, you roll your eyes um, and put up with it because, you know, as you know, you might be sitting, we might be sitting together watching something on the TV and uh, there'll be some music on TV and he will just break into song. He just sings along with stuff you know, as, as the mood takes him and that just fills your heart. And I don't think that the, uh, the success of the movie and how people have, you know, come in waves to see it in the cinemas and then came again to see it on TV twice. I don't think that's lost on him. I know it's not lost on him. And I think that has been 
the wind underneath his wings in the last couple of months um, because it seems to have coincided with uh, a, a huge leaps in terms of his his health and general well-being and general disposition and just, you know, positivity and outlook about life and the future. It's been, yeah, incredibly positive. You want to go one more, Andrew, before I wind well, yeah, up? With- my last one is just to ask, is there another generation of Farnham still to come? Uh, is Rob Farnham perhaps looking to get into acting or is he more of an actor than a musician? Well, both. So, yeah, and, and yes, Rob is very, um, you know, he he's had his band Rival Fire for some years, which is a hard rock band. Uh, they supported Kiss on their last Australian tour. Um in Australia, uh, and he's yes, so he's forever songwriting. Um, he's also, um, you know, he's had experience in in movies at a younger age. He was in, you know, Queen of the Damned. I think was the first movie he was in as a as an actor when he was about twenty one or twenty two. He's forty three now, um, but yeah, he's he's definitely keen to get back into acting. So um, that's part of. Uh, I'm working with Rob as well at the moment um, to try and make all that a reality for him and try and get some, uh, get him some acting gigs um, and we'll just see what, what happens in the coming months. The, um, and before my final question, David, I just shouldn't mm. plug the um, home entertainment release again. Yes, of, please um, do. Of John Farnham finding the voice. And Andrew, you'll be interested in this. I, I did wonder how big a market is there still for DVDs? I think Australia is one of the f- biggest markets per capita with people still buying DVDs or Blu-rays. Like I looked up last year, 20, well, no, it was two years ago. The latest figures I could find were for 2021. The market's still worth $185 million in DVD sales, although it is down significantly year on year. But the um, two biggest selling titles, two motion pictures, Sold over seventy thousand copies each on DVD. So I'm um, I'm guessing that the Farnham Army will be out there and will mm. propel this one up the uh, DVD charts. Look, my final words with you, David. Just give us a little bit of background about you. Um, we've heard about you with John, but I dealt a lot with you at Media Week. It must be a decade ago now when you worked with Dicko. Um, yes, well, we actually, James, you and I go back to your smash hits days. Well, yes. Yeah. When I was at MCM networking with Take 40 Australia and Rock Sat and all those other programs uh, that um, that we were doing there, Tony McGinn yep. and team uh, were doing this. I was there for eight years. So, yeah, we did a lot of work with you back then on uh, smash hit co-promotions uh, through Take 40 and what have you. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it's uh, uh, my story. Well, I was born at a young age. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, we don't have the time to you know. There's, no, but you know, but you, you're in showbiz empresario, mate. I mean, you. Well, but do you still work as a manager with with a client roster? Or yes, indeed. Yes, of you course. Set up these days, what do you? Yeah, so you know, uh, Water Cooler Talent is my company, and that's, that's right. I think yeah. we're we're about to tick over in October. I think it's our nineteenth year, um, and um, you know, apart from. John Farnham, Rob Farnham, uh, Jessica Rowe, Dr. Matt Agnew, uh, Dicko, David Rain, um, uh, Peter Berner, um, Denise Drysdale. It's a it's a delicious eclectic 
boutique roster of my favorite people. In short, you know, you know, when you've been around as long as dot, 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 you just get to that point where you want to just be around people that you like and that make you laugh and make you feel good. And that's the sweet place I find myself in right now. It's a, it's, I've never been happier and more content in my working life as I am right now. It's, it's wonderful. Well, I want to see a new business card that says David Wilson Empresario. What a great yeah. word. I'm going to have to Google it to see, you know, what that <laughs> it's a compliment. Well, it bloody better be. <laughs> I know where your office is, James. I'll be there with a cream pie if it's, if it's not kind. <laughs> uh, John Farnham Finding the Voice is the uh, feature doco. It's out on uh, home entertainment, Blu-ray, available with some nice extra content, which you didn't see on the TV, you didn't see in the movie. So it's uh, well worth adding to your collection. And if you don't have a collection, we'll start one. <laughs> okay. David, thanks again. Available only while stocks last. Prices slightly <laughs> higher in some country areas. 